A reading from the Gospel of Luke, the 18th chapter. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. We might come back to that. We'll see. We'll see how, how far we get if we come back to that one. I want to pull back the lens now away from the particular trials of Paul because I've been thinking about trials and courtrooms and justice in a more global way for the past couple weeks. And at first I was thinking about famous human trials that have shaped us or the world. When I started snooping around the internet, I read about everything from Socrates to Nuremberg to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa to the Scopes trial about teaching creationism in American classrooms. There are trials that bring closure and accountability to massive atrocities. There are trials that change or affirm the direction of societies. There are criminal trials that engross us and reveal things about us, some we want to see, some we do not. There are trials that deliver a sense of restoration and fairness, and there are trials that leave us with outrage or cynicism or unresolved grievance. The courtroom is such a foundation of our civic structure and our social identity that we have one whole branch of government just dedicated to justice. In reading through Paul's charges and defenses and in remembering those of Jesus, I spent some time meditating on the limits of the courtroom. I spent a lot of time thinking about scapegoats and manipulations between the power players in these stories. And I considered what it means to have a clear conscience. That's Paul's claim, I have a clear conscience. I considered the deep work of self-examination that we undertake in our lifetimes when we navigate fairness in relationships. And for Christians, we don't address just fairness, but righteousness. And I was reminded that what is fair is not always what is right. And we certainly see evidence of that in America over and over again, for no other reason than it's a human institution. But rather than considering the limits of human justice today, I I want to offer a short reflection on God's justice. It's safe to say that the Holy Spirit uses the levers of human justice to deliver Paul to Rome, his ultimate destination. It was where he was headed all along, and the courtroom, so to speak, became the vehicle for him to get there. And scripture once again exposes the core tensions and conflicts as Christianity began to get a foothold in the ancient Mediterranean. But that's all that I really want to say about that. Because, 
because in looking at this trial, I thought about not just worldly trials, but Bible trials. I thought about Job, right? That's one big trial, his tests. And that fascinating moment when Job tries to turn the tables and question God and how God overwhelms him with all that God ever was, is, and will be. And I thought about a similar kind of moment in Isaiah when God allows himself to be judged. He actually, it's really amazing, puts himself in the vulnerable position of being the defendant, right? and, And it turns into a courtroom duel because not only is God the defendant in that, but then also flips the script around and tries to prosecute the idols, right? And in the chapters that follow, God speaks of the servant who will unjustly suffer public persecutions by his own people. And then there's Paul's letter to the Romans, and this is where I really want to drill down on Scripture. Perhaps this one more than any other reveals something about us today. In Romans 3, a letter that Paul wrote to the Roman Gentile Jewish community before he got there as a way of introducing himself, Paul takes on a core question of faith. Is God just? Forget human beings. The record is mixed there, right? Thank you, unjust judge. We just had that reading, and the parable only works because it resembles reality. But is God just? Is God just? It's a compelling question for God's children looking out on a suffering world, and we want to square what we see with what we know of God, and that can be difficult. All of you, I think, at one time or another have attested to that. You look at the world sometimes, and it's hard to square that with God's justice. Sometimes the proof of God's goodness is very difficult to locate. But Romans is a powerful indictment of two human tendencies in our relationship with God's justice. And those tendencies tend to distort our view of God. And it's actually those tendencies can be healed, right? That's the hope. But I just want to check you're with me. The core question, is God just? Two things that get in the way of answering that. The first tendency that we humans undertake in our wrestling, we put God on the defensive. Who's ever done that? Sometimes we hear stories that begin with, how could God do this? Ever had that story? Heard that story? Even those of us who generally don't think about God that way, when we suffer deeply enough, we often can't help those thoughts creeping up to the surface of our conscious life. How could God let this happen? Recently, I had someone who has the most enlightened, mature faith you can imagine say, how could God let this happen? I don't even think God works that way, and I'm still saying that question, right? It's really powerful, that urge. We imagine God is the problem in the injustice that we suffer. So in the metaphor of the courtroom, we become the prosecutors, God takes up the seat of the defendant, and when that happens, you have to ask, who do you think is sitting on the judge's bench? (laughs) Who's there? Any guesses? John has one. What are you going to say? Who's on the bench? I don't know. You don't? (laughs) Sin. Sin sitting on that bench, right? All that chaos, all that division between God and human beings. I mean, that's like the foundational definition of sin, the things that come between us and God or us and each other. All sin's having a great day when we put God in the defensive. When we see God as our antagonistic enemy on those days, sin is winning. 
Interestingly, this reveals one of those generational differences between older and younger Christians. Younger Christians, the great nuns that are exiting the church, right? Younger Christians kind of get it that God is not the problem. It's why so many of them have left the church and yet still actually remain faithful. They are very clear-eyed about this. The problem is the human heart and its capacity to harm, not what God did or didn't do. It's something that we can learn from them and something we can speak to in our testimony to the world around us. Yeah, people in sin and the corrupted use of power are a whole lot bigger of a problem in our lives than God is. So here's another powerful tendency. That's one, right? Here's the other powerful tendency that we have when we consider the justice of God. And frankly, I think that everyone, regardless of age and identity, can work on this one. So let's imagine that we do have it right. Let's imagine that we're in the defendant's seat in the courtroom, we with our crooked human sinfulness and the trespasses that we've committed, or even the trespasses that we carry for others and distort us. Let's say we get it right about God too. It's God who's actually now in the judge's seat. So what can we get wrong about this scenario? Think about that for a minute. What can we get wrong in this scenario? Most essentially, John's laughing again. Do you have an answer? Um, I had it and I lost it. Um, but, um, I lost it, sorry. Okay. I'll give you a pass. Beth has an answer. You know, that's really close, Beth. And, and I think actually that might be just another way of saying this. We forget mercy. We misinterpret the situation and we forget it's a situation of mercy. Right? And so a misinterpretation, I don't know if that's what you were going for, but that's, I'm hearing that because the whole point of Jesus is this. When we come before the bench where God presides and we lay before our creator the wrongdoings we've perpetrated, the hurts we have caused, when we come to God with all our regrets and our shames laid bare, through Christ we do not get the punishment that we expect or maybe even deserve. Instead, we do get sentenced, and it's the sentence of grace. That does not mean that there are no consequences. It doesn't mean that there's no repair or reform to undertake. It doesn't mean that all is healed and perfected or that the past never happened. But it does mean that the work of redemption will be guided by love and not by guilt or manipulation it means, as Brian Stevenson so articulates in his ongoing work as a lawyer, we are not the worst thing that we ever did. We are not the worst thing that we ever did. And if we really want to be Lutheran about it, we can say we're not the best thing we ever did either. <laughs> right? We're just human beings, fearfully and wonderfully made, and a lot of times in need of rescue. Too often when we imagine God our judge, we see through our own historical experiences of judicial injustice. The justice system we have in this world can only imperfect, imperfectly reach for what is fair. Just look at Paul and Jesus. The courtrooms of the empire seek only to appease and meet the ends of powers and principalities. 
But God's courtroom isn't interested in propping up oppressive regimes. Or in our democratic experience, it doesn't just reach for fairness or read the letter of the law. And thank goodness, I'm not trashing the American courtroom. Do not hear me saying this. But it's just a human institution. It can only do so much. God's courtroom delivers the mercy that we least expect and the grace that we need the most. And in doing so, it makes the world right. That is why Paul could stand before his accusers and say, my conscience is clear, because he did not answer to them. He answered to God alone. And in that conviction, he and all of us are sustained in peace. Amen. Thank you for your participation, John and Beth. I love that. I'm sorry, I figured out what it was. You want to say? God's the, the judge, and we're the defendant, and we've committed all these sins. But judges are supposed to pass some, you know, go to jail or, you know, pay a price. But that's when my mind goes, well, that doesn't happen with God. So it didn't seem right. But, but I guess a lot of people assume that God will give you punishment. I think, so here's, here's, I'd, here's how I would respond to that. And this is an ongoing conversation. This is not Pastor Amy has all the answers, just so we're clear. I think that in that passing of a sentence, what the gospel has decided is that if we're going to repair the world, we have to be motivated by love. And so when you pass that sentence, it has to be given in love. It's not a free pass just to wreak havoc in the world. That's not what it is. But we're not going to run on our fear of God. We're not going to run on manipulation, right? We're going to run on, I completely accept what you've done. I understand what happened and what went wrong. Here's what we can do to repair, and I'm going to be with you in that. That's what the sentence is, right? Not a free pass, something a bit more complicated, but yes. And the trust is, is that we, get, we, we can stand before God and be seen for all of us, not just the one thing, right? But the whole picture of who we are comes before God. And that's really important too. More talking to do. I'll catch up with you in Bible study on Wednesday. Oh, yes.